This is another episode of Connecting the Dots podcast. I'm Skip Stewart, Vice President and Chief Improvement Officer for Baptist Memorial Healthcare. Hey, everybody. I'm H.F. Mason. I'm a general surgeon and chief medical officer at Baptist Memorial Hospital DeSoto and the chief quality officer for the Baptist system. And hi, everyone. I'm Jake Lancaster. I'm an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist system. Well, today we are so excited. We are having someone that's recently become a good friend, uh, Jeremy Utley. Jeremy is a director of executive education at Stanford's D School and an adjunct professor at Stanford's School of Engineering. He is also the host of the D School's widely popular program, Masters of Creativity. But today we're going to talk about a new book that he was a co-author on called Idea Flow. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us and tell us a little bit about yourself, about the work you do at the D School and about this new work that you've been uh, uh, talking about called Idea Flow. That's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, the, the book really is a culmination of the last, call it 13 years or so of leading executive programs and entrepreneurship programs among both professionals, obviously in the exec ed context, and then also graduate students at Stanford. And is a little bit of a, of a culmination of some of our learnings, both from our adventures and our misadventures in trying to drive innovation and build the capacity to innovate among folks in a variety of industries and a variety of different cultural contexts over the last dozen plus years. Well, Jeremy, once again, thank you so much for being here. And, uh, I assume you're in Palo Alto right now. Yeah, and, I'm, oh, I'm just down the street, actually. I'm in Mountain View. So well, I am in, a, in in like the proverbial Silicon Valley garage. I'm legitimately in the garage. Yeah, we can see we can see your uh, your door there. But, you know, I was you know, I think it's 95 degrees here with a heat index of maybe 105. And I just looked at the weather there. It's like 76. And I mean, it's just um, I'm uh, we're we're jealous and envious. But. But like I said, we're, we're, we're glad that you hear, you're here and we want to talk to you a little bit about uh, Idea Flow, the book. And, um, you know, I'm just going to put it out there. I mean, you, you, you say that um, Idea Flow is the only metric that matters mm. for organi- businesses or organizations. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. Well, it's a, it's a deliberately provocative subtitle, I'll grant you. But yeah, that's... The- the basic idea is, I mean, every day you're facing problems. Idea flow is a is a measure of your ability to solve problems well, your fluency in solving problems. And so, if if your organization is not going through change or there's no transformation on the horizon, then perhaps you don't need to solve problems in the future because all of the solutions you've generated will will buoy you into the future. Uh, I'd be very curious if that were the case. Most folks are going profound changes. Uh, they're going through profound changes, and idea flow is really a measure of a team's ability to generate novel and and fitting solutions to the problems that are emerging. And so, for us, it's the only business metric that matters because it's what determines whether you're going to be able to solve tomorrow's problems. So, so talk us through just a little bit of the definition. I think we all know what an idea is, but what is idea flow? Well, Dr. Lancaster, respectfully, I would say, what is an idea? That that deep breath is the point, <laughs> yeah. right? Like it's a pro, like yeah, yeah, yeah we all know what an idea is. Like, like you, which is, well, yeah, that is I have an idea. Of very, what an very idea rare. Yes, yeah. <laughs> well, but, well, okay, I, I don't, I, I didn't mean to put you on the spot there, by the way, no. but. 
I, and I won't press further because it'll just lead you further into the trap, which I'm not intending to set. Most of us, if it's difficult, an idea is difficult to define. And then if we do define it, the definition is so convoluted as to be useless. And what I would say is, instead of pushing you towards the convoluted definition, let's back up and just say, what's an idea, right? And let's talk neurologically for a minute, because there is a, there is a, um, a fallacy amok in the world today, which says an idea is new and it comes from nothing. It comes from, and it's just like it it's there's this kind of like miraculous moment when it occurs. Right. And there's this mythology and mystique around ideas that actually contribute to our inability to generate them when we need them. The truth is, fundamentally, cognitively, the human brain doesn't create from nothing. Ex nihilo creation literally does not happen here, right? It's, it may happen elsewhere. I, I, as, a, as a person of faith, I do believe it, it happens elsewhere. It doesn't happen in our heads, right? What happens is when we, the, the moment, and it, everybody knows that like when you have an idea, it's like this, right? It's like that moment. What is happening cognitively is two things you already know have come together in an unexpected way. And, and therefore, what I would submit to you, based on my understanding of the underlying neuro, neuroscience and research, is that an idea is a connection. And if you want to generate ideas, you need to be seeking out connections. And far from being semantic, I find it's actually a very operationally powerful definition. Because when I say, quick, come up with ideas, most people panic. But someone who understands, by the way, I was just reading a paper. I mean, this is what you do when you're a nerdy professor. You read papers at night, literally at 11 p.m. last night of reading this paper, that there, where there's a study by these uh, Danish uh, neuroscientists that concluded that if you train people in the underlying cognitive you know, neuroscience of creativity, their, their, uh, their outcomes on divergent thinking tests are 28% higher than if they've just been trained in creativity. Which is to say that if you understand how the brain works, i.e. all you're doing when you're coming up with ideas is making connections, it simplifies things such that you're actually better at generating ideas. And so to me, going back, so all that say, sorry for, for the kind of the diversion, that's I told great. you there'd be lots of let No, 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 that's, that's awesome. Perfect. I mean, because so, when, we say, when we say, okay, we know what ideas are, let's talk about idea flow. Well, actually a lot of people don't. You know, and hopefully knowing what an idea is, you go, I mean, it's really easy, right? It's like, I mean, here's an example. I'm grabbing two things on my desk and haphazardly. Here's a bracelet that my five-year-old made for me. It's too small, which is why it's not on my wrist because it would hurt. And I literally have no idea. And here's a cap, okay, for it to my coffee cup. Okay, if I combine these things, oh, wow, is there a way to attach my coffee cup to me? Is there a way to bring my coffee with me like a, like a, like a camelback that's insulated. Like those are ideas I've literally never thought of till right now. And where did they come from? They came from picking up two things on my desk and saying, what if these belong together? I'm not saying they're good ideas. And actually that's worth, if, if you're willing, you can kind of let me know if you want to go in this direction. I think that's actually a pivotal distinction because when most people think of idea, they immediately think good. And that's a big problem. Gotcha. So we, we, is it safe to say, you know, obviously that's, that, you know, two, two areas in your brain or two thoughts coming together, but is it always a problem or a solution that you're trying to find? Well, I do believe 
problems are the necessary precondition to solutions. So if, if you're going to implement a meaningful innovation, it's got to solve a real problem. And I would say further, many failures of innovation are actually failures. I was just talking, I was on the phone literally right now before this call with the leadership team of a you know, national airline that we all know. And they said most of their failures have been because there wasn't, wasn't because they couldn't technologically pull off the, the new idea. It was because there wasn't alignment around the problem it was actually solving. You know, John Dewey, the American educational reformer, he joked a problem well put, half solved, sure. which I love, right? And so problems are important. But that being said, Dr. Mason, I would say, you know, ideas like I, there may be an employee, you know, and for folks who can't see, I'm just banging this bracelet together. You can hear it with the, with the lid, right? Because there may be implicit problems there, but, but actually the problem in a way came after the idea, which again, I think is part of the problem. <laughs> if, if your idea precedes the problem or you're kind of ex post rationalizing the existence of a problem, you know, look at the segue, for example, they're probably going to be in trouble. Um, so while I do agree that a problem is necessary, you can kind of come at it either way. And then the question is, how do you determine if it's if it's a good fit, if it's worth investing in, if it's worth pursuing, which is a function of kind of a deliberative rigorous process that we talk about in the book? Yeah. Thank you so much for, for going into the detail of the definition of an idea and, you know, linking two different disciplines together uh, to come up with something. I, I think it's a you know, it, it's really important way to look at it. And, and so when we think about good groups or a good person that can generate a lot of ideas, do you find and I think I know the answer to this, that it's the maybe the generalist that knows a little about a lot of things as opposed to the specialist that knows a deep amount of, you know, one particular subject or, you know, and you know, I've already heard that, you know, if you're in a, a group and everybody thinks the same way, trained the same way, uh, they tend to perform worse than a diverse group of people that come together. Mm. What are your thoughts on that? Well, there's kind of there's a couple of questions there. One is around group composition. The other is around individual attributes yeah. or characteristics. And I would say um, I think that the the fascinating thing about group composition, you're exactly right, that a homogenous group is much less likely to hit upon a novel solution than a uh, than a diverse group or a heterogeneous group. And the reason is because a heterogeneous group has a much more varied base of knowledge to draw upon. You can almost, if you go back to this idea of an idea as a connection, you can think about like Lego pieces coming together, right? They snap together. And I tell you, for example, and you know, an electric vehicle company that I've been working with is trying to find a way to solve range anxiety, right? You probably heard that term. That's like yeah. a Lego, cognitive building block, range anxiety, right? People are worried about how far they can go. And then I tell you, uh, in the military, you know, the jet fighters actually have a very small fuel tank and they do what's called a midair refueling to solve the distance problem. And that's another Lego. I don't have to say anything else. Your brain goes, oh, what if the electric? Exactly. Your brain does all the work of pulling those two things together. Right. So you can think about the two Legos when they come together. That's the aha moment. And if you if you would kind of you give me liberty to use that metaphor, a diverse team is bringing a radically different set of Legos to a conversation, right? Everybody's got their own bag of Legos. And if you can create the environment where people can kind of playfully try on different combinations and recombinations, 
you're much more likely to result in a novel solution because of the, the function of the diversity of those Legos. Now, there's a question of part of the challenge, actually, with diverse teams is they're harder to work in. Right. So part of the benefit of a homogenous team is it can move very quickly. And sometimes you want to move quickly. Now, it's also limited in its scope and its ability to be imaginative beyond the base of knowledge of each of its members. Right. Whereas a diverse team much more likely to generate a novel solution, but harder to get traction and harder to build kind of consensus because of that same diversity. So back to your question, you know, there's a fascinating study. I think a, a, a guy named uh, Kevin Dunbar, who's at McGill, and then he's now I think he's at Dartmouth, but he did a fascinating experiment where he studied laboratory environments and breakthroughs in the lab. And his big realization was exactly what we've already described, that the more diverse the composition of the lab, the more quickly the lab solved pressing scientific problems. And what he says, I think Stephen Johnson actually mentions this in his wonderful book, Where Good Ideas Come From. He says that Dunbar's big discovery was that or, the discoveries don't actually come under the microscope. They come at the conference table. And it's the weird anomaly that somebody doesn't know how to solve with the microscope that when they bring it to the conference table, if there's a sufficiently diverse set of perspectives present that can def uh, draw upon a sufficiently diverse set of analogies, he said he saw labs solve in an afternoon problems, you know, a diverse lab solved in an afternoon, a problem that a homogenous lab was stuck spinning its wheels on for months. And as a researcher, he's not allowed to kind of give him the missing piece, right? He's just got to watch as a homogenous lab spinning its wheels, whereas this diverse lab just making leaps and bounds of progress, all because they didn't have sufficiently, you know, diverse kind of contextual information to draw upon in solving the problem. Now, Jeremy, now what about the individual? You know, so the individual, the generalist versus the specialist, who's going to be better at coming up with ideas? I think so. That's a that's a. I mean, obviously, like the popular answer, and I'm a big fan of you know Epstein's range. The uh, the kind of the conventional yeah, answer is generalist. I think is a, is a fair thing. The thing. Well, the well, way that's, that's great. Like I'm, I'm a general me surgeon. Jeff, you're a general surgeon. I'm general internal <laughs> medicine. So we can stop right there. Well, this is great. <laughs> the the thing. I mean, the thing I would say is you aren't general. You you may be generalist within a very specific field. You know, it, yeah. it, it, in in the it, it kind of depends on your reference population, right? And perhaps among medical professionals, you're generalist, right? Among the general population, you're probably hyper specialist, right? So that's it's kind of a function of the reference right. group. I would say the way, um, kind of generally speaking, the way an expert does fall prey to certain cognitive biases, right? There's pattern matching, and the same heuristics that enable them to move quickly are also the things that cause them to be blind to new innovations or new opportunities because their paradigm is more fixed, right? The way an expert can actually kind of uh, can outperform a generalist is surprisingly if they surround themselves with or at least are open to novices. So the, the magical combination is really expertise and novice because you can think about that as kind of a molecular structure, if you will. So my friend, uh, Dr. Bo Lotto is a neuroscientist who's done a lot of really fascinating research in this area. He's got a great book called Deviate. One of the things that he talks about is, I don't think it's in the book, but I actually took like a workshop from him. And he said this, and it's always stuck with me. An expert is spectacular at identifying great questions, but cannot ask them. A novice 
sometimes asks great questions, but does not know it. Yeah. And when you put the two together, that's where the magic happens. You know, like the great Richard Feynman, right? Well, he turned down a, a prestigious teaching or sorry, not teaching, importantly, not teaching fellowship at Einstein's Institute at Princeton. He turned it down. And when you dig into why he writes in his memoir, which I love, which one of my favorite books ever, he writes in his memoirs because they were, they didn't require me to teach. And, and yeah. most people go, wow, that's, that's a dream for an academic to not have to deal with students. He goes, no, 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 no. Students Girl, remind, me joking, of, yeah. they, they remind me of questions that I forgot I was asking at one point. And mm -hmm. they're actually responsible for a lot of my insights because I'm dealing with people who, who they don't know what they don't know. And they, and, and so to me, this, again, this, this reverence for that combination of novice and expert, I see, you know, people like Linda Hill at Harvard Business School. She's an amazing scholar, chair of the Leadership Institute there. She told me when we were researching the book, she always has a young writer on her team, specifically because the young writer challenges assumptions that she makes. And in, we're on a Zoom call and she's got a picture of a like a like almost looks like a, a charcoal sketch of an octopus in the background. And I said, Dr. Hill, what is that? drawing is that like one of your children's drawings she goes oh no the, the, she's like the 23 year old on my writing team she sketched this up she said she thinks it's a metaphor for organizational life does this make you think of anything <laughs> and i was so amazed right it's like this is an imminent professor at harvard business school and in this precious kind of real estate you think about what gets in the zoom it's actually some people are haphazard some people are you know very thoughtful about what's in the zoom window and for for linda hill what makes the cut is this charcoal sketch that a junior member of her research team has given her because one, she, she said, I like to see it and kind of just like be reminded to think about it. But two, it gives me an excuse to ask people like you about it. Right. To me, the reverence and the respect that she affords someone more junior on her team demonstrates the, the importance of that pairing. Jeremy here, here at Baptist, we, um, we would like all of our team members to, from the top all the way down to the very front line, to be good problem solvers. And, you know, from what I'm hearing, a prerequisite of that, I mean, in order to develop and, and, and have good problem solvers, we need to have good idea generators. And, and my next, and is that true? And my next question is, is idea generation, is it a skill? Is it something that can be practiced and is it something that can be learned and, and improved upon? So again, I would say there's two answers. One, and just to go back to your statement, you said, in order to have people who are good problem solvers, we need to have people who are good ideators. I agree with that statement. I would say before they're good ideators though, in order to have people who are good problem solvers, you need to have people who are good problem finders. That's uh, the question. Right. Uh, OK, yeah. so, so being aware of cultivating an attention to problems is, you know, you hear about leaders who say, don't bring me problems, bring me solutions. That's not an innovative leader. An innovative leader says, oh, good problem. Bring me more problems. Right. So the innovative leader recognizes, again, problems are a necessary precondition to solutions. So that's one thing. That being said, once you become a good problem finder, absolutely being a good ideator is essential. And absolutely, I mean, the heart, the beating heart of idea flow is innovations of practice. It's a capability. It's a muscle that you have to flex. The problem with most of the approach to innovation today is it's a workshop. It's an event. We have a hackathon. We got a sprint, 
you know, and it's like, I mean, to use a metaphor, right? For us, the four of us sitting on a on this call right now, if I said, hey, let's all go run a 400 meter dash, <laughs> right? We'd go like, uh, if we did, I don't know about you, I'd probably pull a hammy, right? Why? Well, I don't know, HF. Been, I got intervals for the morning, so I plan on doing some 400 repeats. I think I can do so, it. Okay, he's so Dr. Like, he's going to whoop us. <laughs> he's he's going to whoop us, not because he's not because like he like uh, of anything other than he's running 400s, right? And there is, I think that the the whole paradigm around innovation as an event is broken because what it neglects is the capability, is the muscle, is What's training look like? What's stretching look like? What's warm up look like? There's all of these other things that aren't the event, but they're the they're the discipline that enables you to engage in the event. Well, it's not that events aren't important or useful as a tool. They are. The question is, what gets you into the event? And is it that you've got like a, you know, Baptist badge? It's like, is that what is that what would work to like for the company like Olympiad? I don't think so. <laughs> I think you want people who can run, right? In the same case for ideators, it's not like I got a badge, I'm in this thing. It's like, well, tell me about your practice. Tell me, are you cultivating the habits that are going to make you successful in this moment? Are we are we going to have to take you in a stretcher to the hospital or are we going to win a medal? Well, it depends on, on your behavior and your mindset and your practices before we get to this event. And that to me is a critical aspect of this is attending to the capability um, on a regular basis. And that's something that most people don't do. And that's part of the paradigm shift that I'm trying to invoke is moving from like an event-based paradigm to a capability-based paradigm. And just like you're aware of your BMI and your resting heart rate, like there are pragmatic measures you can make to kind of gauge creative wellness, just as you can your other aspects of your health. You know, and so, you know, back, I guess, to your title, Idea Flow, the only business metric that matters. Um, you know, people come up with ideas all the time, but if you can't actually implement or act upon the ideas, it's, is it really matter as, as much as, as you're stating the only business metric? Right, right. I mean, you're right. I, I mean, it's, the point is not an idea pond. The point is not generate a bunch of ideas. Now you got those pond stocked. Let's go fishing, right? You know, no, not at all. The point is flow. Flow is just as important, if not more than idea in idea flow, right? And so what constitutes flow? One is, you know, question of input to one's thinking. One is the question of the volume of idea generation. But then the other is, what do you do with the stuff that you generate, right? The, the only difference that, to my knowledge between the Dead Sea, which is dead, hence the name, and the Sea of Galilee which is one of the most biodiverse you know, ecosystems in the world, they're fed from the same source. But whereas the Sea of Galilee does, the, sea, the Dead Sea does not have an outlet. And that's an enormous difference, right, ecologically. Well, what is the outlet for your idea generation? You will stagnate to basically a dead idea sea if you don't also have a process by which you experiment and try things out and see what's a good idea, right? All of that is just as important, right? So I am not advocating, you know, go, go to a, you know, a retreat center, go on a silent meditation retreat and come up with a bunch of ideas and then, and then come back, you know, come back down like Moses with the 10 commandments, you know, no, 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 no. That's not, 
all respect to, you know, whatever anybody else does. You want to be commissioning scrappy experiments and multiple chapters of the book are dedicated not to the practice of generating ideas, but to the to the to the low resolution, scrappy, fast, affordable methods for finding out which of all the ideas I came up with are worth even thinking about again. Jeremy, what, what's the difference between, uh, you know, for people who would say, well, you're just talking about you're just restating brainstorming. What, what's different between idea generation and, and, and brainstorming, you know, sitting around a table at a whiteboard, you know, just putting up ideas. Well, uh, brainstorming is great. I mean, I, I think the challenge is we've, people have become inoculated to a brainstorm. I don't, you know what I mean? It's almost like the flu shot. It's like, now we can't catch the real thing, right? Similar uh, effect of a brainstorm. It's like, everybody's had a bad enough experience that they're never going to do it for real. Right. You get like the invite to the brainstorm and all of a sudden, like everybody's got to go pick up a sick kid from school. It's like weird. Why is nobody <laughs> attending the brainstorm? It's like because it's broken, not because the mechanism of bringing together people together for the purpose of solving a problem. That's not broken. The problem is like we've got all of these kind of wrong. Uh, you know, It's almost like watching an episode of The Office. Right. It's like coming to a company brainstorm is as close as I get to feeling like I'm working for Michael Scott most of the time. Right. <laughs> Cause all of these weird biases and weird stuff comes to play. I don't and know. So you're kind of selling the brainstorm. I, I'm interested in attending one now. If it's like, working I mean, at the right? office. He's not, no, it's a, it's, it's a comedic endeavor. I kid you not. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's, it's, and I love it. And I sit on the outside and anybody who's not a part of it can see the parody of it. Right. It's only the people who are in it that are miserable. Right. The people who are watching are like, dude, if only they'd, you know, dot, 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 right? So again, it's, it's a semantic difference in a sense, Dr. Mason. What you're saying is it's not about, I don't care what you call it. It doesn't matter. Um, the, the one thing I would say is a brainstorm is typically like it's a, it's a dedicated time slot for the purpose of solving a problem. And what are the implicit um, uh, assumptions that most people make? One, I don't have to think about it until I get there. Two, we're going to come up with the idea once we're there. And three, we're not going to have to think about it after we leave. Very, very simply. I mean, like just to be Sesame Street simple. Those are three radically incorrect assumptions about what it means to solve a problem. And so for us, it's, 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 it's uh, acknowledging and addressing the biases that are preventing a brainstorm from working. And the truth is, everybody should be thinking about it ahead of time. And what you're doing in the in the meeting is not solving, but imagining and building and exploring and generating and then never, never make a decision at the end of the brainstorm, except to say, everybody, our best ideas have likely not occurred to us yet. So keep thinking about this. When we meet again, let's talk about all the better ideas that come to us because we had this conversation. Right. So it's, it's just simple tweaks. But you can you can transform that event when you stop thinking about it as an event and you start thinking about it as a step in a sequence of activities that are likely to yield a different outcome over time. So talk about that a little bit more. I think in the book you say something like it takes 2000 ideas before there's a good idea. You know, for a lot of us that have done the brainstorming, you know, we're lucky to get 10, maybe 20. Um, 2000 is, you know, it's a huge stretch. Well, so so let's be let's be clear. It's not that it takes 2000. It's not that you have to have 2000 ideas before the good idea comes. It is to say for every 2000 ideas you generate, 
one of them has will become commercially successful. Okay. So it's not like 2000 now choose the one and we're good, but over the course of time and over the course of iterations, one on average, according to research for every 2000 ideas that get generated, one becomes a commercial success, right? So it's a slight difference, but yeah, I mean, that's for most people, if you say, you know, Linus Pauling, only individual to win two, two Nobel prizes, right? You, uh, incredible thinker is someone asked him once, Dr. Pauling, how'd you have so many great ideas? And he said, Oh, it's easy to have a good idea. You need to have a lot of ideas. Okay. So that's like, that's yeah. like a nice kind of cheeky statement from a Nobel laureate. But the question is how many, by the way, I, I am loving the physicist quotes on here. This is great. I was a physics yeah. major in college. This is I'm, I'm a really sucker for a physicist. I love yeah. it. Don't even get me started on Oppenheimer. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, most people, if you ask them, well, how many is a lot? Linus Pauling says you need a lot of ideas. How many is a lot? And people go 20, 30, 40, right? If you think that's all you need to get a commercial success, you're delusional, right? And that's the thing. Most people are delusional when it comes. The truth is it's multiple orders of magnitude more. And if you realize that kind of the table stakes are a volume and a, and a practice and a discipline around generating ideas, not because they're a prerequisite to, but because it's it's this is a numbers game, then you approach things differently, right? And you start to you know be more aware of problems and you start to be more aware of generating solutions and, and interfacing with diverse collaborators and diverse sources of inspiration and trying a bunch of different stuff to see what works. Not because but basically because it's just like you know financial investing. Everybody has a diversified portfolio if they're trying to kind of build wealth over time, right? You have some muni bonds, you got some domestic stocks, you got some tech, you got some international equities, all that, right? that comprises a, a diversified portfolio. The same thing is true for innovation, but most people don't have a portfolio when it comes to innovation. You know, like one of my friends, uh, Philippe Barreau, he runs the innovation lab at Michelin. And he says that, and in, in he said one of the most valuable functions he performs at Michelin is he helps the organization learn they should not invest in a direction. He said we save enormous amounts of money, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars if we learn we shouldn't invest in that technology or that, you know, whatever it is. Right. And so so everybody values the fact that he, he, he said many ideas come here to die. You think about an incubator, you think the goal is to make it live. It's like, no, no, the goal is to get rid of stuff that's not worth investing in. And he said, the problem is when, when a leader comes to the to the um, lab with their bill, he said, like a lot of times they got this billion dollar post-it, like this is their billion dollar idea. He said, then we can empirically demonstrate we should not invest in that idea. He said, the problem is for most leaders, that was their only post-it. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Wow. You know, and the point is, if you if you're taking a portfolio approach, it's like, you know what? I got this one, but I've also got this business card and I've also got this bracelet and I've also got this, you know, and we got a bunch of different stuff here. And I'm not sure which one's going to work. And I'm commissioning a, a portfolio of bets and experiments and I'm gathering data that's that's meaningful data. Right. It's just taking a different attitude to the to the um, to the goal of innovation. Well, Jeremy, this has been fantastic, but I've got a couple of questions uh, before uh, we, we bring it to an end. Uh, one, I know the answer to because I read the book and, and plan on to actually start reading it again. It's that good. 
Uh, and the other one, I don't know the answer. So uh, so let's go with the one I know the answer. So I want our audience uh, to hear from you. When we think about idea flow, what's the formula that you talk about in the book around flow? How do we actually measure that that idea flow? Very simply, it's just ideas over time. Very, very simply. Um, and you might go, well, that's uh, ideas over time. That's it. I'd say, yeah. And you go, well, that isn't that simple. I'd say, well, how many ideas did you have yesterday? Most people have no idea. <laughs> it's just to say the simplest possible thing. I don't know. Okay, great. Well, there's a starting point, you know? I mean, and there's easy ways you can kind of create proxies, right? I mean, one we, we offer in the book is, you know, take out an email that, you're, that you need to write and uh, it, set a stopwatch for one minute and try to generate as many subject, uh, you know, to the email as you can in one minute. You know, oh, oh could you do three? Could you do 10? Yeah, that's your effective idea flow. And the point is not that it's like that it's a, that you're measuring it with the kind of precision that you measure, call it heart rate variability, so much as to be aware, am I facile and fluent? Am I capable of generating a bunch of possibilities and alternatives with a low kind of preciousness or fearfulness in a short period of time? If so, chances are your, your idea flow is pretty healthy. If, however, you're hemming and hawing and you go, oh, I, can't, I can't think of another thing to call this email. It's like, I'd work on that. I mean, the, the one, of, one of my favorite pieces of research, not to send us in a new direction here, Skip, but just briefly, one of my favorite pieces of research is conducted by a doctor named Dr. Charles Lim. And he conducted an fMRI study of freestyle hip hop artists and jazz musicians because he wanted to see what happens. What are the parts of the brain that start getting more blood when someone really enters a creative state? And one of the most profound findings was it's actually not about more blood. It's about less. And the thing that happens when someone enters this flow, this jazz improv state is a particular part of their brain stops getting blood flow. And you know what part of the brain that is? It's the it's the area responsible for judgment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which is profound, right? To think about what actually what what inhibits our creativity is that sense of censorship. What's a good idea, right? And what most people do, even in and, and now I'm like giving you the cheat code here, when most people sit down to think of uh, you know, a subject line to an email, they're trying to think of good subject lines to the email. That obsession with good is part of the problem. Because, I mean, thinking back to my example earlier, right, the bracelet and the, the, the cap, I wasn't thinking, what are the two best things on my desk that I could combine? You know, I've got a Leatherman and a, it's, it's like, whatever, right? No, the point is not good. The point is combinations. And if you have 50 terrible uh, subject lines to an email in one minute, I am happy to endorse you as a, as a much more creative person who came up with one very clever subject line in a minute. Because I, I would say, wow, it's way more of a fluke that you thought of one good one in a minute than someone who could legitimately come up with 50 bad ideas in a minute. I, I, put, my, I put a $1,000 wager on them every time. Every time, if they beat you once, great. Okay, I don't care. Because <laughs> next time they're going to beat you. And the next thousand times they're going to beat you. 
So to me, it's like that. It's that fluency that really matters. Anyway, I kind of went on a tangent there. No, that's really, really good, Jeremy. Actually, during that process, I actually came up with multiple more ideas, but this would end up making this podcast go for another hour. So I'm just going to pick one of them. Uh, One of the things I did as an experiment the other day, and I'm curious whether this is something you as a professor do at the D school or but um, I asked uh, chat GPT for some ideas. Yeah. And and it was really helpful. I know there's Mm -hmm. a lot of feelings and emotions that are revolving around AI these days, but I found it as a very helpful tool on my phone just to ask chat GPT. And it came up with some thoughts that then sparked some other thoughts that were not there on. Have have you seen the same as a professor? Do you see that same approach? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you do not want to open that Pandora's box. The answer is for sure. Absolutely. I'm doing research on the implications of Gen AI on collaboration and problem solving right now and doing another research study on kind of discovery, helping organizations, um, with the discovery of opportunities to, you know, automate or amplify business processes with generative AI, right? So we've been working with organizations studying the impact on collaboration. We've worked with other organizations studying how are they undertaking the task of finding applications. It's a fascinating space, but the short answer to your question is it's a fantastic brainstorm partner. The one thing I would say, by the way, just if you, if you want a little bit of the, you know, TLDR Cliff's Notes version of some of the findings is don't approach AI for the answer. Approach AI for a conversation. And yeah, when you're looking, if you come agree. looking for the answer, you're, you fall prey to all the cognitive biases that are affecting you anyway, right? Because you know what you're doing? You're trying to come up with the answer. And that's the problem. Yeah, no, no, I, the, I completely the agree. The answer is the problem. No, I mean, but I mean the proverbial you. Not, you're, yeah. you're exemplary, Skip. You're exempted from this. <laughs> but for most people, they're looking for the answer. And the truth yeah. is, like, our the problems we're facing don't have one. We're not mathematicians in most cases. How do we improve the patient experience? It's like, there's a billion ways to do that, right? And anytime you start thinking of the, in terms of the answer, you get into trouble. But the same thing is true of many things. So, but and yet, so that's kind of like cognitively, existentially true. And yet, when we come to Chat GPT, we go, "Ooh, it's another way I can find the answer." It's like really okay, good. Well, shocker, you're not actually going to get much better output. But people who say, "You know what? I want to engage. I want to ask Chat GPT to ask me five questions I wouldn't have thought of, and then I want to ask it to provide alternative answers to all the answers I give, and then I want to ask it what it thinks of the answers that I give." you know, and, and interrogate me, right? You have some fun with it. All of a sudden you're having a conversation and it's a phenomenally valuable uh, collaborator and, and conversation partner. Really good. So Jeremy, as we come to an end, first of all, big, big thank you for, on behalf of Baptist Memorial Healthcare. For those that want to connect more with you, I know you've got a, a great newsletter that I received. How can folks connect with you? Yeah, I, for sure. Sign up for the newsletter. I, I send out a newsletter once a week. I've got a podcast and a blog that I keep up pretty regularly. My website's jeremyutley.design. Folks can go there, get a free bonus chapter of our book called How to Think Like Bezos and Jobs, which is very fun. And then, of course, connect with me on LinkedIn. You know, it's like I, I accept all connection requests. So that's, that's uh, any anyone who reaches out, I'll, I'll accept. And I'd love to stay in touch and and hear what questions you're grappling with. Um, one of my favorite things to do is just to talk to folks who are trying to solve problems and and provide 
whatever input that I can. And so it's a, it's a joy to hear from folks who've read the book or who have questions in general. Fantastic. Thank you so much. On behalf of Baptist Memorial Healthcare, thank you for coming on today, Jeremy. My pleasure. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it was excellent.